Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. As you turn there, set us back in context again. Matthew's Gospel features the unfolding of really Psalm 118, 22 through 24. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Of course, Jesus is the stone. He came as the promised Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how the book opens. And he introduced the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. He taught in their synagogues, proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness amongst the people. And he pursued the Jews, offering them the kingdom in earnest, telling his disciples in Matthew 10, 5-7, don't go the way of the Gentiles, and don't enter any of the cities of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus was the stone... And the Jews to whom he came were the builders that were to reject him. Even though his ministry was marked with miraculous, authenticating proofs, the Jews, led by the religious leaders of their day, made one excuse after the next for rejecting him. Why? Because of envy. They liked the respect. They liked the honor that they got from the masses. And Jesus both corrected and violated their touted tradition of the elders. Jesus told the masses that unless their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that they wouldn't even enter the kingdom of heaven. They didn't like that. The Jewish rejection of Jesus only escalates throughout the book of Matthew. In chapter 12, we saw Jesus disobey and contradict their strict Sabbath laws in the name of compassion by healing a man with a withered hand in the synagogue right in front of everybody. He publicly showed them up, highlighting their lovelessness, their lack of mercy. But did they repent when they were called out? Well, of course not. Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected, not the one that they heeded. So in 1216, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as how they might destroy him. But lest we be disappointed by that, what we're seeing here is what God had planned from the beginning. We've got to remind ourselves that this rejection is not the end. It leads to the stone becoming something. Remember what we read at the very beginning. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus is the stone. The Jews are the builders who rejected the stone. And the church, which will be comprised of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people is that people of which the risen Jesus Christ has became the chief cornerstone. You'll find this, we need to understand this as we read our Bible, because 1 Peter 2, 7-10, through 10, the precious value then, Peter says, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. That's what was going to happen. Peter was foretelling the destruction that was going to be coming by 70 A.D. as that generation of Jews had rejected the Messiah completely. And the church was going to be established where God drew every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself, built on that cornerstone. And that, picking up in Peter's words, we are a chosen race now. We believers, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Guys, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We would be hopeless had God not done this. The whole world would have been. He had to be rejected, die on the cross to pay for our sins and the sins of everybody in the, in the whole world that would believe. That's good news. It's the reason we call it Good Friday instead of Bad Friday, isn't it? When he died on the cross. We've seen Matthew foreshadowing this coming judgment of the Jews and the inclusion of the Gentiles throughout the book. 
But after they conspired to destroy Jesus in 1216, the theme became even more obvious. Beginning in chapter 13, Jesus no longer instructs the people in the law, but only teaches them in parables because it's not given to them to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And all the parables have a couple of overlapping common themes. The growth and expansion of the kingdom of heaven and the coming day where the Son of Man will separate the sons of the kingdom from the sons of the evil one. Our current section began in chapter 14 where we see um, the rejection of Jesus among the Jews hit new heights. The, the whole withdrawal narrative beginning in 14.1 and running through 16.12 is a contrast between the Jewish and the Gentile response to Jesus' ministry. In 14.1-12 through 12, we were introduced to the threat of a Gentile political leader, Herod the Tetrarch, who killed John the Baptist, as we remember. And Jesus withdrew from that threat into a Jewish area where he would be safe. But he's compelled in that into ministry while he's there, so it gets all kinds of attention to come to him. He heals the sick, feeds the multitudes, and then heals even more people at Gennesaret in 14, 13 through 36. And this led to a Jewish threat in the form of a formal inquisition of high-ranking scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem. Remember that? Where the people in Jerusalem are nervous about him because he's getting all of this attention. And they're going to put him on trial to try to call him out for how he's disobeying the tradition of the elders. Despite Jesus' many miracles, this Jerusalem inquisition finds fault with Jesus. And Jesus responds by calling them out for their hypocrisy, for invalidating the law of God for the sake of their traditions, and he even calls the crowds over and publicly humiliates them in front of everybody. That enlarged the elephant-sized target on Jesus' back, and he withdrew into the Gentile areas where he does the exact same miracle on a slightly smaller scale than he did for the Jews a chapter earlier. But the Gentiles, they don't reject him like the Jews had. What did we find? They glorified the God of Israel. Now in 16.1, Jesus returns to the Jewish audience and let's see what happens. I think we'll kind of picked up on what's going to happen, haven't we? Even before we read it. Matthew 16, 1-4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. We're going to look today at another dangerous rival, another deceitful request, and Jesus' disregarding response. Well, let's begin with this another dangerous rival. In verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up to Jesus testing him. Does this whole text seem familiar to y'all? It should because it's like deja vu all over again, if you've read through the book of Matthew. Right after the Pharisees began to conspire how they might destroy Jesus, we had Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Listen to this text. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, yet no sign shall be given to it except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, he already answered this once, didn't he? He's already done this. Did Matthew forget? Uh, no, there, there's some differences, and those differences play a key role in the development of the narrative. First, we, part of this, this, new, this new event, it's the same old Pharisees that have came back. We know the self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees all too well. We, we must remember their last encounter with Jesus in chapter 15 where they pulled Jesus aside to ask him why the disciples violated the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands when they ate. And before Jesus answered, he absolutely went off on them, right? So they're not happy with Jesus. He said that they had spent their whole life mastering a religious tradition that wasn't only wrong, that was wicked. Everything they had believed and taught everybody else was not only wrong, it was wicked. 
He called them hypocrites or mask wearers who only pretended to be righteous to please men. In verse 7, he told them that their honoring of God with their lips was only lip service because in reality their heart was really far away from God. And then in verses 7 through 9, when Jesus did finally answer their question, he did it in the most disrespectful way possible. He called the crowds over and addressed them with the question uh, and addressed the answer. He answered their question instead of discussing it in private. He did it in public in front of everybody. You see what I'm saying? Like he calls everybody over and says, hey, they had this question over here. They, they're concerned about how I'm living. Let me tell you the answer to their question. And he told the crowds in front of everyone that Everything that the scribes and Pharisees had taught their entire life was completely wrong. That washing one's hand did nothing to purify a man in the sight of God. He said that that, that which came out of a man was made a man unclean in the sight of God. And the crowds knew that Jesus had taught against the tradition of the elders for his entire ministry. And he highlighted their hypocrisy. So in essence, Jesus is saying, don't worry about ceremonially washing your hands, but if you want to be clean, you need to stay away from these Pharisees and scribes. Jesus was a bold guy, wasn't he? So yeah, the disciples were right when they asked Jesus in 1512, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? You think? Of course they were. The Pharisees were a lot like the so-called conservatives of our day. You know the conservatives today? They're trying to conserve something that they think is righteous and godly, but their standard is far short of the requirements of God's holy law. And yet they congratulate themselves for being bastions of righteousness. Any minister worth his salt will refuse to ignore the sins of these so-called conservatives and will call them to God's holy standard. That's what we have to do. And when you do, you'll find that most of them will side with the progressives against you before they'll admit that they've got anything wrong. They'd rather come at the person that's telling them they're wrong and trying to call them farther right. They'd rather go to the left than to go to the right, wouldn't they? And that brings us to our first change from the nearly identical narrative in chapter 12. The questioners are now the Pharisees and the Sadducees instead of some of the scribes and Pharisees. It's easy to meld all these groups together as if they're identical, but if you do, you completely miss the point. Who are these new guys? Who are these Sadducees? Well, if the Pharisees were wrong, and they were, the Sadducees were wronger. (laughs) They were were really messed up. The the Sadducees were at the other end of the religious spectrum. They were the ultra-liberal progressives of their day. Uh, Acts 23.8 sums it up well. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, there are no angels, there's no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Pharisees believed they were holding to God's way where the Sadducees had pretty much given up everything supernatural about the Bible. They'd rejected it all and believed that they needed to be going toward progress. They were okay with Hellenization and everything. Let's become more Greek. Let's become more like the Romans. Hey, it's fine. God's with us, but God's nothing like what all those Pharisees and all those conservatives think that he's actually like. They were kind of right, but they were wrong too at the same time, weren't they? They rejected the Holocaust, the tradition of the elders, and they prided themselves in not adding to the Scriptures. But although they accepted the Old Testament Scriptures, they obviously stripped them of their supernatural content. The Pharisees tended to be aristocratic. Josephus said that they had the confidence of the wealthy alone, but they had no confidence among the populace. Sound familiar? I mean, it really does, doesn't it? Like, the, the rich sided with them, but the grassroots, you know, deplorables, they were on the side of the Pharisees. They were com- compromisers, both religiously and politically, these Sadducees were. <laughs> They had little use for Greek philosophy and intellectualism, but they were greatly attracted to the pragmatic and practical Romans. Socially, they tended to be wealthy and to hold more powerful positions. Well, that's understandable, isn't it? If you're living for only this life because you don't believe in any resurrection from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry. Make as much money as you can. Do as well as you can. That's who they were. The chief priests and high priests were all Sadducees. They held the majority of the seats on the Sanhedrin. 
The Pharisees were more representative of the common working people and had res the respect of all the masses. The Sadducees' locus of power was in the temple in Jerusalem. It was them who profited from the sale of sacrifices in the temple, while the Pharisees controlled the synagogue, majoring on morality and teaching what's actually right and wrong and trying to keep things moral according to their standard. The Sadducees were friendlier with Rome and more accommodating to the Roman laws than the Pharisees were. The Pharisees often resisted Hellenization, becoming like a Greek culture around them, but the Sadducees welcomed it as progress. In short, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had absolutely nothing in common. That's a dated... Some of you old people know what that is, right? The odd couple, right? Completely messed up. Religiously, this is MacArthur, religiously, politically, and socially, the Pharisees and Sadducees had almost nothing in common. The Pharisees were ritualistic, and the, Sadduc uh, the Sadducees were rationalistic. The Pharisees were strict separatists. The Sadducees were compromising collaborators. The Pharisees were commoners. At least most of them had a trade. The Sadducees were aristocrats who had all kinds of money. Yes, both groups had members among the scribes and were represented in the priesthood and in the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. So they were together a lot, but being together a lot, that actually only gave them a place to argue. So oh, it did. These two groups despised one another. They're constantly arguing, debating, and disagreeing. That's how it is when you're with someone whose worldview is vastly different than yours. I think y'all can relate, can't you? You, it's hard to find much common ground. It's awkward at best when you're around somebody who's completely opposite to you in every way. Right? Well, why are these two groups cooperating here? Well, the Sadducees hated anything that might upset the status quo. And Jesus was quite the boat rocker. You think Jesus might upset the status quo? Well, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand and they've got prominent seats in the temple and in the synagogues and they've got, they've got all this clout and all of them. They don't want to give it up. Sadducees didn't want to lose their positions in the Roman government. The Pharisees knew it would have been easy to mobilize the Sadducees to influence... Uh, to, to use their influence to squash this Jesus movement before it gained any more steam. The Sadducees cooperated with the Romans and thus they had all this political power and if the Pharisees wanted to execute Jesus, then Rome would have to do it because the Jews were not allowed to perform capital punishment. So the Pharisees conspiring how they might destroy him, first they got the scribes who they had a relationship with and now I guess we're going to have to go even farther. Let's get the Sadducees too. If we want to get him dead... We're going to have to get these aristocrats who have the connections with the Roman government. So you can see that the threat against Jesus, it's going up a notch, isn't it? That's when we see Pharisees and scribes go to Pharisees and Sadducees, it's getting even more real. Although they ordinarily criticized and despised one another, the two religious groups found common cause in their opposition to Jesus. The point is that rejection of Jesus is increasing and the threat against his life is becoming even more real. James Montgomery Boyce says this, he says, War like misery makes strange bedfellows. However, and here both the Pharisees and Sadducees appear side by side in their opposition to Jesus. More than likely they were representing the Sanhedrin, which included both groups, and this was probably an official delegation. The narrative flow suggests that they are waiting in Galilee for Jesus, anticipating his return from the north so that they can confront him just as soon as he gets back. Matthew says that they wanted to discredit him by demanding a miracle that he could either not do or would not perform. So we've seen another dangerous threat here, haven't we? We can see how it's that. And let's look at this another deceitful request from them. Verse 1 again. They were testing Jesus... And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. The scribes and Pharisees are always asking questions that aren't questions, aren't they? That doesn't change when we add the Sadducees to the equation. They're still asking questions or requesting things that aren't really requests and aren't really questions. But once again, there are details added and removed from this request for signs that continue to push the point of increased rejection and danger. Their deceit their deceitful intent is explicitly stated. Notice that first. Remember in Matthew 12, 38, 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want a sign from you. This time we have, they came to Jesus testing him and asked him to show a sign. They added this word, testing. That word means to try to trap, to attempt to catch in a mistake. To tempt, to test for the purpose of making one sin, implying that they would not succeed in the endeavor that you're giving them. So the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't come to Jesus in hope of finding truth for themselves, but in hope of finding falsehood in Jesus. That's the way skeptics are, isn't it? Not everyone who's asking a question is searching. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Proverbs 18.2. Proverbs 29.9. When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs and there is no rest. It's the same today. When many more signs than those seen by these men on that distant day have been given, people still reject just like they did then. Today there is overpowering evidence for the claim of Jesus as the unique Son of God and Savior, but people still will not believe. It's an insult to God to claim that there is insufficient evidence. I hear people say, well, you just have to believe by faith, and they mean that there's no evidence there. Yes, there is. There's tons. But people are blinded to it. They can't see the evidence for the same reason because they got their eyes covered and they won't look. What kind of evidence would it take? Boyce said this, he said, I sometimes say that even if God rearranged the very stars of the heavens to read, Jesus is my son, with whom I am well pleased, believe on him, people would look at the stars and scratch their head and say, well, isn't that unnatural? I wonder how the stars managed to rearrange themselves like that. Another difference is, though, that they don't call him teacher or rabbi this time. Notice that. In 12, they said some of the scribes and Pharisees said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Here they just say, show us a sign from heaven. The term of respect is gone now. I'm not sure if that's from the influence of the Sadducees who being rich and well-connected politically refused to even pretend that they had respect for this poor Nazarene carpenter turned into a messianic figure. Or if it's because of the encounter of chapter 15 that the Pharisees are too angry to even address Jesus with a respectful greeting. But either way, the animus has clearly grown and that brings more danger once again, doesn't it? And that brings us to the last difference between these two requests. They now demand uh, explicitly a sign from heaven. Last time they just said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And this time they say, We want to see a sign from heaven. I want to say this. Asking for signs is not inherently wrong. How do we know? Because many righteous people ask for signs in the Bible. Think of Gideon. Right? And many of those requested signs were granted. And many signs were offered that were not even asked for. The problem here is that the prophets told us what kind of signs that the Messiah would show and they didn't want the signs that were promised. They wanted different signs. Well, think about what all the Bibles, what all the prophets had said you should expect from the Messiah when he came. That the blind would receive their, their sight. That Isaiah 29, 18, 35, 5, 42, 7, speaking of the Messiah, says that he would open the sight of the blind, open the eyes of the blind. And Jesus had done that. And they've heard about it, they've seen it happen, and they don't care. That's not the sign that they care about. Why? Because they, want to, they don't want to believe, they want to not believe. So they're just going to keep moving the goalposts. The lame will walk, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer. Jesus has done that. They've heard about it. They don't care. Lepers are cleansed. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, Ezekiel 36, 25. Jesus has done that. They've heard about it. Do they care? Nope. And even the dead have been raised. Now that... There's no direct prophecy about the Messiah raising the dead in any of the Isaiah texts. But who could argue with such a powerful sign? Jesus has done that, and they've heard about it, but they don't care. And add to that the casting out of demons, the calming storms, the calming of storms on the Sea of Galilee, the miraculous feedings. Most, if not all, of these miracles had been reported to these leaders, and they had even seen some of them, especially the Pharisees had. But they hated Jesus and their demand was really only an attempt to discredit him. Instead of recognizing that Jesus has performed these prophesied messianic signs, what do we see? Well, they demanded their own sign. Show us a sign from heaven. Popular Jewish superstition held that the demons could perform earthly miracles, but only God could perform heavenly ones. 
From heaven indicates the desire to see a miraculous sign in the sky. Well, you know, we maybe you're doing this by the power of Beelzebul because it's just all these things are just earthly signs. They've already blamed him for that twice in the book of Matthew, haven't they? So, hey, if you'll give us a sign from heaven, then we'll believe it, they say. The Pharisees and Sadducees demanded a miracle that they thought was beyond Jesus, hoping to prove that his power and therefore his message wasn't divine. He would be publicly discredited and they'd be vindicated. What exactly are they wanting in this sign from heaven? Well, the kind of sign that they wanted isn't specified, but it must have been something absolutely extraordinary. A sign of worldwide magnitude. Think of causing the sun to stand still or having the constellations rearrange themselves or causing the moon to race across the sky. Something amazing like that. A contemporary Jewish tradition told of a certain rabbi, Eleazar, who was uh, challenged regarding the authority of his teaching. And to prove, prove his genuineness, he is said to have made a locust tree move 300 cubits and to have made a stream of water flow backwards. And then finally, Eleazar exclaimed, If the law is as I teach, let it be proved from the heavens. And at that moment, the story goes that a voice came out of the sky saying, What have you to do with Rabbi Eleazar? The instruction is as he teaches. Well, it didn't matter that the story was about as factual as Rumpelstiltskin. That was their demand. They wanted something like that. Well, look, hey, they did that. Legend has it that this happened for Eleazar. Let's see you do something like that. Fully expecting that Jesus couldn't. The request amounted to an official demand for Jesus to prove himself to be the Messiah. The spirit of the demand was that if you're truly the Messiah, you'll have no trouble providing whatever proof we demand. Ironically, there have been signs, heavenly signs, associated with Jesus' ministry, haven't they? Remember? Remember in the very beginning at Jesus' birth that there was a miraculous star that drew wise men from the east, Gentile people who recognized the star in the heavens and came to worship the king. They said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We had a miraculous heavenly sign, for we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And what was the result of that heavenly sign? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Excited? No, the Jews weren't excited about the heavenly sign. They were troubled by it. Why? Because it might change things. Herod sought out the scribes to find out where the Messiah was to be born, and they knew, but they didn't go. Only the Gentile Magi went to worship the Jewish king. King Herod even conspired to kill Jesus. This heavenly sign didn't persuade them. And then at Jesus' baptism, there was another heavenly sign, wasn't there? And remember, at Jesus' baptism, when he was baptized in the Jordan by John, in Matthew chapter 3, you remember? The scribes, I mean the Pharisees and Sadducees came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And John rebukes them and calls them a generation of vipers who shall warn you to flee from the wrath to come. And while they're there, Jesus shows up. And a voice comes out of heaven after he's baptized. The Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And the voice says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Apparently that miraculous heavenly sign wasn't enough, was it? It's never mentioned again. Pharisees and, and Sadducees weren't looking for reasons to believe. They were looking for reasons to doubt. If you're looking for reasons to believe, then you'll find them. Because they're there. If you're looking for reasons to doubt, you'll find them. Because you'll set the bar wherever you want to. And you'll move it anytime you see fit. And you'll refuse true submission to God until you deem that God has earned your submission. Newsflash. God owes you nothing but wrath and He's given you every pleasure that you've ever enjoyed. Repent of your obstinance and bend the knee to King Jesus now. He's not yours to boss around. You're his to be bossed around by. And you'll give an account for your rejection of him. You don't get to demand of him what he has to do to earn your allegiance. He's your creator. He's your God. He's your king. You'll either bend your knee now or you'll bend it later. We've got to get that right in our heads. He don't get us in our obstinance. He doesn't get it at all. He calls us to repent. The Pharisees and Sadducees won't believe no matter what. Clearly, they didn't expect him to be able to satisfy their demands. Jesus consistently refused to perform this kind of miracle. His miracles were always directed towards real needs, not to, to satisfy the demands of skeptics. Remember when Herod wanted him to do tricks for Jesus. 
I mean, he wanted Jesus to do tricks for him. And Jesus stood there and wouldn't even open his mouth, wouldn't even address him. Well, he might have been able to save his life. He didn't come to save his life. He came to give it. He doesn't bend his knee to skeptics. He doesn't need your approval. Jesus was no circus performer. So instead of bowing to their demand, what do we see him do? We see Jesus' disregarding response, our third point from the text. Look at verses 2 through 4. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. At this same point in the next gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus sighed deeply. He was angered by the obstinate unbelief of these people that, that he was so angry that he ends up mocking, rebuking, and disregarding their, their commands. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, do you ever get angry and sigh deeply because of people's obstinance and their refusal to believe? And you ever think, well, I need to repent of that. No, you don't. It's a natural human response. You don't get to sin just because you feel that way, but feeling that way is not a sin. Jesus felt the same way you do. Let it turn us to prayer, but we don't have to feel guilty about things except for what the Bible tells us is actually sin. Being exasperated and frustrated and aggravated, we can do that and still maintain the fruit of the Spirit and still have a loving disposition and posture toward people. Jesus did. But he did, his anger did drive him not, not to coddle, not to pat him on the head. Oh, it's okay a little bit. No, he didn't do that. He mocked their lack of discernment. Look at verses 2 through 3 again. He replied to them and said, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky and cannot discern the signs of the times? What is this response all about? Well, you've probably heard this saying. Red sky at night. Red sky at morning. They already knew that all the way back then, didn't they? This adage reflects the general truism that when the sky is red at sunset, the weather will be fair the next day. But if it's red at sunrise, then the weather is likely to turn foul very soon. Is that always true? No, but it's generally true. And they had observed it. They had seen it. And they knew it. They had observed things well enough. They had kept their eyes open well enough to recognize what weather you could expect by looking at the sky. A little bit of folk wisdom was, was, was something that they could get. But what, is, what Jesus is saying is that they've observed the skies enough to notice general truth from the natural order, but there's a supernatural truth right in front of them that has been much more obvious than the timing of the redness of the skies and the weather that follows it, and yet they can't see it and they won't see it. How could they not recognize something so obviously miraculous, especially when every major aspect of Jesus' first advent was prophesied by the prophets? They told us what was coming. Jesus comes and miraculously does it exactly like they said he would, and they still can't see it. And Jesus is like, how can, how can you not get this? Smart enough to understand the skies and the weather, but you can't get this. And in addition to mocking their lack of discernment, we see that he gave a strong word of rebuke. It says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. This language would have been quite familiar to the Pharisees and Sadducees because it's steeped in the Old Testament tradition. If you didn't know that, let me, let me encourage you. Read the Bible. Okay? You need to be reading the Bible. This is throughout the Old Testament. You, you see them be called adulterous. If you're like, oh, I didn't know they were called adulterous. You're, you're Christians, and you know what Christians are supposed to do? They're supposed to read their Bible. And then when you read it, you'll understand it better because you're actually familiar with it. They were these scribes and Pharisees. These scribes and Pharisees have uh, scribes. I'm sorry, Pharisees and Sadducees are one up on you if you don't know this because they would have known the reference. They were more familiar with their Bible than you are. Repent of that. I'll get off my soapbox now. But repent of that. Adultery was frequently used by Old Testament prophets to describe the spiritual prostitution and idolatrous apostasy of Israel. I have several scripture references you can look up when I send out the notes to you, but it's all through the Bible, over and over again. Here Jesus applies it to these contemporaries, to these experts of the law. But what could he mean? 
These men hated the idolatry of Old Testament Israel. The Jews had abandoned all idol worship and syncretism after the exile. They never went back to worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. They tore down the high places. All that stuff is gone. But he's now calling them the same language, adulterous generation, that the old prophets had called Old Testament Israel. He's saying, you're just like them. Well, although they didn't bow before idols of wood and stone, Jesus insists that they still had adulterous hearts. He's going back to exactly what he had told them in chapter 15. You're hypocrites. You worship something other than me. You, you, you praise me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Where's your heart really? In pleasing men and having the esteem of men. They were man worshipers. They wouldn't receive Jesus. And he's pointing back to the fact that it's because of their idolatry of their seats and their positions and their prestige and the honor of people, and that Jesus was still in their thunder. He's pointing back to the fact that they're still idolaters even though they don't have wooden idols. Their idols are the praises of men, the seats in the synagogue, the political clout. And to gain or to keep that, they would oppose God himself. No amount of evidence, no sign could ever win them over because they didn't want to believe. And then... He refused to grant their sign. The next thing that we notice in verse 4b. And yet no sign will be given to it. A Jew who faithfully served God under the covenant given to Moses would accept Jesus when he came because anyone rightly related to the Father could not fail to recognize the Son. Think of Simeon and Anna and Luke. Think of John the Baptist. He recognized him right away. Think of the twelve. Think of the masses. They recognized Jesus for who he was. But they knew the Father... Because they knew the Father, they knew the Son also. And they didn't need some arbitrary sign to verify His identity. It was not possible for Jesus to perform a miracle of the sort that the Pharisees and Sadducees demanded, not because He didn't have the power to do it, because it was, but because it was utterly contrary to God's nature and plan. God's not in the business of bending Himself to satisfy the whims of evil people who have no relationship to Him. And neither should we be. We're not trained dogs that bark when we're told to speak. He wasn't that. He wouldn't do it, and we shouldn't either. That's not how it's done. We point them to the gospel. We plead with them according to the gospel. We don't answer their every objection on and on and on forever and ever. It's a waste of your time and a waste of theirs too, and it only adds condemnation to them. They'll never hear. So Jesus wouldn't give them. Why? Because you don't give that which is holy to the dogs. He already told us that in Matthew 7, 6. And you don't throw your pearls before the swine, or they'll trample them under feet, and they'll turn also and tear you to pieces. But although Jesus refused to grant their sign, He did prophesy of another promised sign. He won't give, no sign shall be given to this wicked and adulterous generation, except He'll give them a sign. Not the sign they're asking for, but He's going to give them a sign. He's going to give them the sign of Jonah. Here we see another difference in this narrative and the narrative of chapter 12. This time Jesus doesn't even take the time to explain the sign of Jonah. The more they reject him, the less he interacts with them. You see that? Last time he explained, no sign shall be given it except the prophet Jonah, for as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster three days and three nights. He actually explains what the sign of the prophet Jonah was. This time he just goes to shorthand and he moves right on. He wasn't in the business of wasting time. He's God. He doesn't waste anything. He was a perfect, sinless son of God. He wasn't wasteful. He didn't even waste words. We'll give an account for every idle word that proceeds out of our mouth. Jesus didn't want to have any of those, so he didn't. So he just went, went down to accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. Oh, and let that be a caution to you. Guys, have you found yourself ever rejecting things you know to be true? That's a dangerous game to play. You reject, and God withdraws. You reject, and God withdraws. You receive, and God gives more. Don't be caught in this dangerous spiral of rejecting things because you love your sins so much. You'll find yourself so far from God you won't know what to do. You'll not be able to hear His voice. You'll be cold and indifferent and distant. And you'll wonder, what in the world happened? How did I get here? You did it to yourself is what happened. You rejected what God was saying, what you knew and what you understood, and then He wouldn't speak to you anymore. It's a dangerous, cold, difficult place to get out of. Don't let it happen to you. But we know, we know what the sign of, the, of, of Jonah is from the last time. Jesus did explain it to us in Matthew 12, 39 through 41. 
He said, yet no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We'll briefly consider here the Jews' imminent rejection of Jesus and Christ's imminent redemption of his people. The Jews' imminent rejection first. Jesus knew what was going to happen. From here on, you're going to see something pop up a lot. This sign of the prophet Jonah, he didn't call it that again, but we see it a lot. Matthew 16, 21, here on the same page. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again on the third day. Matthew 17, 22 through 23, it says the same thing. Matthew 20, 18 through 19, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him and put him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Matthew 26, 1 through 4, you see it again. The Pharisees had asked Jesus for a sign, and Jesus had given one, though it was a sign that they would not see until the, the close of his earthly ministry and his return to heaven. Would they believe in him then? The sign is they'll kill him. He'll raise from the dead. He'll go to heaven. And they still won't hear him. Even if one returns from the dead, they still won't hear. That's exactly what happened. They hardened their hearts more and more and more, and it led to their complete and utter destruction by 70 A.D. Jesus is warning them that's what's coming. That's the sign. You're not like Nineveh. Nineveh heard when Jonah gave the sign. He came out from the belly of the whale, smelling, stinking like fish. He'd been in the belly of a whale for three days, comes up looking like a crazy person, gives them that brief little message, and they heard, and he spared them. Jesus, the non-reluctant prophet, comes literally dies, not, not in the belly of a sea monster, literally dies on the cross, comes back from the dead, and these obstinate Jews still would not believe. That's the sign that's going to be given. He saw the rejection of him as clearly as he saw the resurrection itself. They would get the sign of his resurrection, but they would respond in exactly the opposite way of these men of Nineveh did, who believed when Jonah preached to them. The sign made a comparison between Jesus and Jonah. Both were signs because of the supernatural deliverances, but the similarity stopped there. Since the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, while in the case of Jesus the hearts of the people became hardened, Jesus knew they wouldn't believe. They couldn't. For then, how could the Scriptures be fulfilled? This was what had to happen in order to accomplish God's plan. Remember, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's God's plan to redeem His people, a spiritual people, from their sins. The men of Nineveh, these Gentiles, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it that the Ninevites would be the ones that would be judging the Jews. And they didn't like that. But it's exactly what happens not only do we have the coming judgment of the Jews, we see Christ's imminent redemption of the church. Jesus was the stone. The Jews were the builders that rejected it. And Jesus would become the chief cornerstone of a new people, a church composed of Ninevites and of Gentiles from every nation under the sun. Remember what he had told the uh, uh, in Matthew 8, um, the centurion. The Roman centurion. Many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, speaking of the Jews, will be cast out into outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're almost done, but I want to play a little. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 21, 42 through 46. As I said, this is the Psalm 118. Matthew's just the unfolding of that. It's a, the, the main theme is the coming of the kingdom of God and the division between Jew and Gentile and the engrafting of, the, of a new people of God built on this new cornerstone. Matthew 21, 42-46, Did you never read in the Scriptures? And what does he quote? 
the stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, and on whomever it falls it will scatter them like dust. And when the chief priest... A Sadducee. And the Pharisees heard his parables. They understood that he was speaking about them. And when they, uh, when they thought, sought to seize him, they feared the people because the people considered him as a prophet. This was the plan from the beginning. Mary would bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people. From their sins, John 1, 11-13, Jesus came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe on His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That God supernaturally brings you forth by the Word, brings you to faith, and makes you His people through Jesus Christ. That's the miracle. That was the plan from the beginning. It's not just the Jews. Can a Jew be saved? Yeah, if they believe in Christ Jesus, and many will. But it's only through Christ. He is salvation. Sola Christos. He's all we've got. And that's exactly where we see Matthew go in this narrative. I'm giving you a, a preview of what will be in, in our sermon three weeks from now. Matthew 16, 17-18. Jesus said to him... Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, who Jesus was, his identity. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, but my Father who is in heaven. It's not because you're a Jew. You didn't just figure this out. You're not just God's people by your natural lineage. It was revealed to you by the Father in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this rock, upon Christ himself, I will build the church on this. I'm the cornerstone. Belief in me is the cornerstone. I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. And what's the last thing we see Jesus do in this text? Well, he left them and went away. Back to 16, verse 4. Because the unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees would not have him as Lord and Savior, Jesus just left them and he went away. The word here for left them, it means to leave behind. It carries the idea of forsaking or abandoning without help. He just refused to help them anymore. He's done with them. That's the end for those who will not receive Christ. They are totally and finally abandoned by God. They're given over to their own lusts, their own impurities, their own degrading passions, their own depraved minds. You can read about that in Romans 1, 24-28. That which is willful, sinful, and satanic, that blindness becomes God's sovereign blindness. There comes a point where you're so far, God won't even deal with you anymore. You're given over. You've committed the unpardonable sin. You've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. You've rejected things you know to be true because you love your sin too much. Let me warn you. If you're here, don't start down the path. Don't resist the smallest, stillest, smallest voice of God. Heed and heed quickly. He will leave and go away. John MacArthur said that event marked an important transition in Jesus' ministry. Henceforth, the Lord spent most of his time with his disciples and little time with the crowds or the religious leaders. He turned away from those who rejected him and focused his attention on his own. He gave no more arguments or signs for unbelievers, only additional truth for those who believed. Invest deeply in believers. Hey, I want to do ministry. Catechize your kids maximize the time you've got pour into your loved ones pour into people who respect you and that you have their ear do you go outside of that? absolutely but prioritize though that's the model that Jesus gave us and when they reject oh I've just got to persuade them while you neglect those that God's made you accountable for we get things all twisted we leave God's design. We think we're really serving Him that way. Let's do what He actually says and what He actually models for us. And then the kingdom of heaven will spread like leaven to the entire world. Are you one who receives Jesus by faith? 
Too many people are tempting the Lord with their conditional surrender. Give me a sign and then I'll believe. Give me some sign that Jesus is the Son of God and then I'll gladly become a Christian. I'll go to church. I'll say my prayers. I'll read my Bible and I'll do all the things Christians are supposed to do. Just give me the sign. If you're not walking in the light that you have, then God will not grant you the light that you demand. He's too, he's too gracious. You'd just burn that too and you'd have more for which to give an account. Let me assure you that no sign shall be given to those who demand one. The request of the scribes and Pharisees nearly 2,000 years ago is an everyday, every generation request and it's just as insincere now as it was then. It's not... Is it, not, it is not so much a request as it is an excuse. People want signs that God exists and that Jesus is Lord, but they always want their signs rather than the one that God has already provided. I'll trust in Jesus if He cures my cancer. I'll trust in Jesus if He saves my unsalvageable marriage. I'll trust in Jesus if He makes some girl that's out of your league fall in love with you. If He gives me the job that I want or the promotion I want or the raise that I want. Show me something miraculous. Just give me a sign. Then when she falls in love with you, well, shoot, I am a catch. You, it never does it anyway, does it? You get the promotion. Oh, well, I really worked hard. Well, my marriage got fixed. Well, I'm, I really, I salvaged that thing. I really wooed her back. No sign works. Unfortunately, these people are just like the Pharisees. They're turning a blind eye to what the Bible tells us. The Bible's self-proving. You know, faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the Word. When you study the Bible, you can't deny its supernatural origins. But they want these other signs out there. Not in here. Not in here. And it'll never work. The sign that has been given to every generation is the death of burial and resurrection of King Jesus. That tomb really is empty. He really did appear to, to the twelve and to the women and to five hundred brethren at one time and to James and to the Apostle Paul as one untimely born and the church really has marched for two thousand years not being conquered but going about to conquering and, con and to conquer and it's just gotten started. Believe he's given all the evidence that you need. Acts 17, 30-31. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now declaring to men everywhere that they should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man who He has appointed, having furnished proof, proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for drawing us to Yourself and giving us faith. Lord, those that have been obstinate, that are in rebellion right now, whether it be in some sinful habit or if it even be in starting to entertain ideas of doubt, I pray that you'll pluck them out of that. This sermon would waken them, that you would draw them to yourself through this, that you'd bring them back, bring them to yourself, and don't let them fall away. Uh, God, we uh, pray that you'll help us to maximize our time, to pour into those that we love, uh, and to to be a faithful witness in the world and that you'll give us wisdom to know when to press and when to withdraw and how to spend these moments and these days that you've entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.